Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. To be honest, the topic of this episode was something I dreaded for quite a long time, for two reasons. First, because Ikebana is first and foremost about the perception of beauty, and I didn't have the slightest idea how to explain it in words. And secondly, because Ikebana is all about flowers, which the Japanese treat very differently than most of us do. Take me, for example. Before coming to Japan, I was completely indifferent to flowers. They are beautiful, no doubt, but I never had any interest in knowing their names, blooming periods or cultural significance. Pretty things are just pretty, and that's enough, as one good book puts it. It doesn't work that way in Japan. It seems like everyone in this country has completed an obligatory course in botany, because in the minds of my friends, the year was divided into flowering periods of plum, peach, sakura, almond, magnolia, wisteria, azalea, phlox, hydrania, and several dozen other flowers. The number of additional dozens varied, of course, but the general basic level of knowledge of plants was high, regardless of gender and age. So, gradually, the Japanese introduced me to flowers. Now I also know the names of the main seasonal flowers, and more importantly, the best gardens and parks to admire them. It's just the beginner's level, though. But even at that level, it becomes clear that the Japanese know flowers too well, and love them a bit too much to just bundle them into colorful brooms we call bouquet, where most of the plants are not even fully visible. And so instead of bouquets, in Japan there is ikebana, the art of creating floral arrangements designed to show the natural beauty of plants. According to the masters of ikebana, beauty should be revealed, not created. Although, looking at the techniques they use, at first it's quite difficult to understand exactly what they mean. So, let's figure it out. It is believed that for the first time the idea that flowers could be used as decoration came to Japan along with Buddhism about one and a half thousand years ago. What was done with flowers before that and whether anything was done at all is not clear. Buddhism, on the other hand, is truly unimaginable without them, at least without lotuses, which are found here and there in sculpture and images, including those placed in a high vase with a narrow neck. But around one and a half thousand years ago is too approximate, and an art as significant to Japan as Ikebana could not have been left without its founding father, and without a grandfather and great-grandfather as well, except that very few documents from that time have survived, while myths are abundant. Well, let's look at what we have. At the beginning of the 7th century, a noble envoy named Onono Imoko returns to Japan from China. Here he is met by Prince Shotoku, a devoted Buddhist, temple builder, sutra writer, child prodigy, genius lawnmaker, and altogether magical unicorn. 
We'll definitely talk about him sometime, because, magic or not, the temples he built are still standing, and it's hard to imagine how the history of Japan would have turned out without him. One day, the prince, accompanied by Ono no Imoko, goes to Kyoto, which is not yet Kyoto, to collect materials for the construction of another temple. Here he finds a sacred tree and decides to build a temple from it on the spot. Then Prince Shotoku leaves for Osaka, and Imoko, now called Ono Imoko Senmu, remains in charge of this new temple known as Rokkakudo, and becomes its first abbot. Imoko builds himself a hut near the temple's pond and brings flowers to the main image of Buddha every day in morning and evening. The following abbots continue this tradition. And wait a bit, in a few centuries we will return to the story of the abbot of Rokkakudo Temple, who lives in a hut by the pond. In the meantime, we are in the Heian period, and aristocrats enjoy flowers in their gardens. They also send flowers or blossoming tree branches along with poetic letters. The recipients, in order to admire them for longer, put the plants in containers filled with water and place them someplace visible. And so, in aristocratic circles, the idea is gradually taking root that flowers, in general, look quite good in the house. And yet, for now, floral decorations are associated mostly with Buddhism. Along with it, they evolve from simple floral offerings to complex compositions with their own symbolic meanings. Ultimately, the early Buddhist floral decorations were intended to symbolize their idealized beauty of paradise, and as a result, they were generally both ornate and really sumptuous. The beauty of the flowers in these compositions was of secondary importance. But it was these Buddhist compositions that would set the first rules for making a kibana. So let's see what made them so remarkable. A good example for us would be Choju Giga scrolls, written in the 12th, 13th centuries, where monkeys, toads, and hares are engaged in various human activities. Among other things, it has a scene where a monkey in monk robes sits in front of a toad Buddha. And in front of the Buddha, in a vase, you can see three lotuses, a larger blooming one and two smaller buds. This, in fact, is the Buddhist triad. The same triad also appears in the Mitsugusoku, a set of three objects displayed in front of the hanging scrolls with the Buddhist image. The set usually consisted of an incense burner, a candlestick and a vase with a floral offering. Together, they were placed on a small table or tray, and in the 13th, 14th centuries, these tables began to appear not only in temples, but also in the residences of aristocrats and upper-class samurai. The tables were placed on a special thick board called Oshiita, by the wall where the scrolls were displayed. And I think many of you have already guessed then this construction is very reminiscent of the Tokonoma alcove, an integral part of the traditional Japanese interior. As a matter of fact, our board indeed will soon become a Tokonoma. But we shall return to the flowers. In the middle of the 14th century, the shoguns of the Ashikaga clan gain power in Japan, and the two political centers of the country meet in Kyoto, 
where samurai culture blends with that of the imperial court. And for us, it means two things. First, Japan again has active contacts with China, from which it imports luxurious bronze vases you can show off to your guests. Second, at the end of the 14th century, at the court of the third Ashikaga shogun Yoshimitsu, the same one who built the Golden Pavilion in Kyoto, and by the way, I have a separate episode about that, we see the emergence of Doboshu, monk advisors in arts. Basically, Doboshu helped their patrons to show off to their guests, and were each in charge of a different field of art. Among them were those who were versed in music or theatre, Chinese painting or other artistic treasures, such as the earlier mentioned bronze vases. To accentuate the beauty of the particular vase, Dobosho would complement it with a floral arrangement. And you guessed it, soon the Dobosho specialized in flowers began to emerge. The Dobosho culture reached its peak in the second half of the 15th century, during the rule of the 8th Ashikaga shogun, Yoshimasa. As bad a ruler as Yoshimasa was, he was just as great as a patron of arts. And it was from the second half of the 15th century that the documented history of Ikebana begins. And by the way, from now on, the art of flower arrangement is actually called Ikebana. Two famous Ikebana masters of the late 15th century were Ryuami and Ikenobo Senkei, the monk from that very Rokkakudo temple that I told you about at the beginning of the episode. The surname, or rather the title, Ikenobo, means monk by the pond, and refers to the story of Onono Imoko, who built a hut by the pond on the temple grounds. In 1462, Senkei is mentioned in a diary called Hekizan Nichiroku. In an entry dated February 25th, it reads, At the invitation of Shunko, Senkei made a floral arrangement in a golden vase, and denizens of Kyoto with refined taste vied to see his work. Two decades later, in 1486, we would see the first records by Ikenobo himself, Kawairai no Kadensho, which is the oldest surviving textbook on Ikebana. In the early 16th century, the codification of Ikebana would be continued by Ikenobo Sen'o. He would present it as one of the paths to enlightenment and surround it with philosophy. Ikebana, according to Sen'o, is not just a flower arrangement for pleasing the eyes. Flowers in a vase are here to express their natural and true form and substance, and therefore sometimes even a bare branch can be an important part of the composition. And since Senno was a recognized master of Ikebana who made composition for the imperial palace, his ideas quickly spread and found followers among aristocrats and the samurai nobility. Senno's formalized style of flower arrangement was called Rikka, standing flowers, and today it is considered the oldest style of Ikebana. So now let's see exactly what all these low tables, Chinese vases, and Buddhist influences turned into, and what the Ikebana of the 16th century looked like. By the 16th century, the thick board with low tables successfully transformed into Tokonoma alcove. 
and the strict composition of the incense burner candlestick flower vase ceased to be so strict. The alcove became a place for displaying beautiful things, namely scrolls and tea utensils, and the very same Chinese vases. However, the flowers, once used to emphasize the beauty of the vessel, were gradually coming to the forefront. All this took place against the backdrop of a country in turmoil. Powerful warlords were building palaces and castles with grand halls. The vast halls had large Tokonoma alcoves, which required large vases and, accordingly, large flower arrangements in them. The Rikka style met all these requirements. Grand and complex, vivid and memorable, the compositions many times the size of the vase conveyed the majesty of nature. But at the same time, the influence of Buddhism in Rikka is still strong. Despite Senno's philosophy of natural beauty, in practice the beauty of the flowers in the composition was not yet so important. Like the floral offerings of earlier centuries, Rika paid much more attention to symbolism and, in a sense, to the unearthly beauty. From Buddhism, Rika also inherited a love for symmetry, and therefore, instead of the lively Japanese earthenware, masters preferred cold and symmetrical Chinese vases, giving the impression that flowers were growing vertically from a heavy bronze vessel. The triads also remained with us for the time being. Only now, instead of the modest three lotuses in one vase, one would be faced with three vases with complex compositions. By the middle of the 16th century, Rikka develops even more rules. It identifies seven main branches, each of which has a special function. Ways of combining certain ready-made elements appear and such a large number of rules left practically no room for self-expression. But following the rules ensured that anyone could make a decent-looking arrangement. The samurai, who by this time were not only relying on professionals, but had begun to practice ikebana themselves, clearly liked such a course of events. In the second half of the 16th century, Rikka experiences the peak of its development. To decorate the grand halls of samurai residences, masters of the Ikenobo school are now creating not only the classic standing rikka, but also its subtype, sunamono. These wide spanning compositions on shallow trays fit perfectly on shelves inside the tokonoma, leaving the main part of it for the classic vertical rikka or for the display of tea ceremony utensils. Then, the year 1594 marks the creation of, if not the most famous ikebana, then certainly the most famous sunamono composition in Japanese history. According to the records of the Maeda clan's residence, that year Ikenobo Senko created a gigantic pine sunamono in the main reception hall of the residence. It stretched more than 7 meters wide, and from the wall behind it was complemented by a four-part scroll with monkeys that appeared to play in the branches of a pine in the arrangement. By the way, this ikebana can be seen in the 2017 film Hanaikusa, also known as Flower and Sword. It was recreated specially for the movie using old drawings and records for reference, and it does look stunning. 
But what is even more striking is how the Ikebana for the movie was actually created. Looking at it, it's hard to tell if it's a flower arrangement, a sculpture, or a piece of carpentry. Such complication and sculpturization of Rika would continue for another century or so, drawing crowds to exhibition of Ikenobu school and attracting more and more followers to the art of Ikebana. But then it would also become the reason the citizens of the 18th century Japan would lose all interest in Rika. Fortunately, by the 18th century there would be a few more styles of Ikebana to pick from, and the art of flower arrangement would not be forgotten. The beginning of those styles lies in the 16th century, so let's go back in time. Around the same time as Rika appears the style called Nageire. Also, it is yet quite difficult to call it a style. Nageire translates as thrown in, carelessly placed, suggesting that the flowers are simply put in a vase. They're not straightened, not bent, not fixed in a certain position. Of course, Japan is Japan, and Nageire was not left without rules for long. But it preserved its main feature, and all the future development of this style will turn into an attempt to demonstrate the natural beauty of plants in the best possible manner. Nageire would also have an influence on the refined art of the tea ceremony. The famous tea master Sen Norikyu would popularize the ceremony held in a tiny rustic hut with minimal and simple decorations. One of the elements of such a decoration would be chabana, a tea flower, a discreet and refined composition of a single flower loosely placed in a vase. The exact opposite of the bright and pompous rika. It is said that the perfect chabana should be created in just 10 seconds. All you have to do is to take a flower or other plant in your hand, cut it to the right length and immediately put it in a vase. It is believed that if you hold a flower in your hand any longer, the human ego will most definitely want to change something about it. This is why the beauty of chabana depends 60% on the choice of the vase, 30% on the choice of the flower and only 10 on the skill of the creator. In Ikebana it's vice versa, and the skill of the creator plays the biggest role. This is why Chabana is not considered a style of Ikebana, although you can easily see that the idea behind the tea flower strongly resonates with the Nagire style. Nagire itself would reach its golden age in the 17th century. And this was already the Edo period, when the countrywide battles were over and people of all social classes had free time, money and taste for beauty. And as the cities continued to grow, so did the number of city dwellers and their wealth. Tastes were now set not so much by the aristocracy, but primarily by the samurai and wealthy artisans and merchants. The houses of city dwellers now also have a tokonoma alcove to be decorated, and Japanese earthenware and the lightness of the nageire appeal to them much more than Chinese bronze and the stiffness of rika. Following the change in tastes, ikebana continues to evolve. In the 18th century, a new style is becoming popular. Seika, or shoka, 
as the Ikenobu school calls it. In translation, Seika means nothing other than living flowers and represents something in between Rika and Nagire. A typical composition in this style is much smaller than Rika, defeating a smaller tokonoma in a townhouse, but more structured than a Nagire. The composition of Seika has to follow rules, but far less strict and numerous than in case of Rika. Instead of the seven main lines of Rika, Seika uses only three, each with its own symbolic meaning – Earth, Heaven and Man. Becoming an elegant and acceptable substitute for Rika, Seika grew in popularity and branched out into the numerous schools across the country. But uh, the 18th century turns to the 19th, and as I mentioned in almost every episode, in 1868 comes the rapid modernization of the Meiji era. For practitioners of traditional arts, the rapid westernization of the late 19th century came as a shock, and especially so for the ancient Ikenobu school and others associated with the imperial court or powerful samurai clans. However, soon the major government began a reform of education. Among other things, the reform called for the education for girls, whom the school was to raise into good wives and wise mothers. The curriculum also included ikebana, which had previously been considered more of a man's art. And this is where the masters of ikebana found their new place. Even the head of Ikenobo school, Sensho, taught at a regular school in the 1880s. This way, in less than a generation, ikebana transformed from a predominantly male art to a predominantly female one. Another thing that came into the world of Ikebana at the end of the 19th century was Kenzan. Kenzan is basically just a heavy, flat, round or square metal block with spikes. An elegant ancestor of the crumbly green form you can find in any flower basket today. What made Kenzan so revolutionary? Well, unlike the wooden partitions used to fold flowers before, it allowed to hold them not only vertically, but also at practically any angle. And it was largely thanks to Kenzan that the next style of Ikebana came into being. Along with everything Western, foreign flowers reached Japan at the end of the 19th century. And at first many Ikebana practitioners bluntly refused to use them in their arrangements. But it was not the only problem. Western flowers were often shorter than Japanese ones, so they simply could not be put in at all ways. But every problem has a solution, and so a man named Ohara Unshin appears in our story to solve this one. Unshin was born into a family of porters, and was himself involved in pottery and sculpture until, according to the official story of the Ohara school, he switched to Ikebana due to health problems. He used his pottery skills to create low, wide, tray-like container called a suiban, in which he used kenzan to arrange flowers on the plane and not just aiming upward. The new style was named Moribana, piled up flowers, and in 1895 Ohara founded his own school, Ohara-ryu. In 1912, the school was established officially and started to rapidly grow in popularity, 
So eventually, other schools, including Ikenobo, adopted and began to teach the style of Moribana. Today, Moribana is the most popular style of Ikebana, which, however, can be easily explained by the fact that it looks best in modern interiors, where Tokonoma alcoves became a rarity. With the invention of Moribana, there was no turning back for Ikebana. And since the 1920s, creativity has prevailed over strict rules. Porters created more and more unusual and bizarre flower containers, and the masters of Ikebana were no longer constrained by the classical rules of the composition. Ikebana goes into freestyle, which is exactly what Giyuka, the name of the most recent style of Ikebana, translates to. Some arrangements in this style go so far away from the familiar image of Ikebana that they seem to belong to the world of contemporary art or art installation instead. The last remaining tradition left in Jiyuka is seasonality, which the artist can now express through personal interpretation of familiar materials. The popularity of Moribana and the emergence of the freestyle, however, do not mean that the classic Ikebana has become a thing of the past. Even by the most modest estimates, there are about 300 schools of Ikebana in Japan today, including the three famous ones, Ikenobo, Ohara, and Sogetsu, that have divisions all around the country. In 2012, Rokkakudo Temple held a lavish celebration of the 550th anniversary of Ikebana, which is counted from the day when the name Ikenobo Senkei first appeared in records. Meanwhile, some artists create floral arrangements in the hair of living models or become famous for using the most unusual vessels for Ikebana while others are making public the secret 17th-century documents, bringing back the interest in the art of Hanatsutsumi, a floral arrangement placed in a decorative envelope form from paper. So, unlike many of other traditional arts, Ikebana is doing just fine and is not going to become some half-forgotten past anytime soon. On this optimistic note, I'll leave you for today. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss the next episodes. Share your favorite episode with a friend and check the links in the description for more information on the topic. Talk to you soon. Bye.